The average medical student graduates with about $200,000 in student loans now. That'll grow to around $250,000 by the time you finish a residency. Borrowing a dollar to pay for school today is going to cost you $1.50 to $2 on the back end when you're going to pay it back. Even if you don't know if you're going to pursue PSLF, keeping that door open, I think, is big. And there are also a lot of employers that are very aware that student loans are a huge burden for young doctors. And there are many that are willing to sort of negotiate some payments over like a three-year term or something like that to take a chunk out of those student loans at least. You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC, and now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors. My name is Rochelle Vanderzanden, and I'm here with my co-host, Corey Janoff. Hello, everyone. Yep. Today, we are going to dive into everyone's favorite topics, which is student loans. Obviously, everyone loves to talk about that. The average medical student graduates with about $200,000 in student loans now. Corey and I have worked with a lot of doctors over the past few years, and I can say from personal experience, I'm sure Corey has seen this as well, we see a lot of people that come out with twice that much. It's a pretty wide variety of how what the balance actually is when you finish. If you do end up having that average of $200,000 in loans, that'll grow to around $250,000 by the time you finish a residency of three years. That interest keeps accruing because you're making smaller payments while you're in training. So when it comes down to it, your student loans basically become like your first mortgage, except that a mortgage you get to pay back over 30 years usually, and with student loans you often have to pay them back in 10 to 15 years. So how we manage this in different stages of our career I think is a very important thing to plan. So today we're going to talk about how we can manage this and try to minimize that burden as medical students, how you can manage the debt package as it is in residency, and then how you can aggressively attack it when you're in attending. So Corey, you want to talk a little bit about medical students? Sure. Yeah, I guess in looking at the three phases of student loans, or the borrowing stage would be where the medical students are. And often medical students don't really think about it. It's just, oh, we take out student loans to pay for school because we have to pay for school somehow and that's what everyone does. But you've gotta be conscious that when you borrow money, it's going to accrue interest at whatever interest rate you've signed up for. And borrowing a dollar to pay for school today is going to cost you $1.50 to $2 on the back end when you're going to pay it back. And, and this is assuming no public service loan forgiveness. Obviously, that's um, a, a different discussion. We'll do a separate podcast specifically on PSLF. We'll touch on some of the high notes today, but uh, we'll dive into that more in depth another time. But to you know, further dive into this example, you know, if, if like Rochelle said, if you have a two hundred thousand dollar balance at the end of med school, so you've borrowed fifty thousand a year to pay for school. After residency, you'll probably have, you know, if it's a typical three to five year residency, you'll have around $250,000 accumulated after the interest has accrued. Um, Let's say 
that when you get into practice, you refinance that 250000 to a 4.5% interest rate on a 10-year schedule. Obviously, interest rates could change, could be different for you. Um, there's a number of factors, but we'll just run with that scenario for this example. So 10 years, 4.5%, your monthly payment on that $250,000 balance would be about 2600 per month, which adds up to $31,000 per year. And over 10 years, that's 31,000 times 10, $310,000 that you end up paying back on that initial $200,000 loan that you borrowed, which is a little over one and a half times the original balance. If you did a six year residency or fellowship, your student loan balance will be closer to 275,000. If we use the same refinancing scenario, um, 10 years, four and a half percent, your payment will be 2850 per month or 34,000 a year. So 340,000 repaid over 10 years, which is 1.7 times the original balance. So I think for any students out there or pre-med students thinking of going into med school, keep that in mind and know that whatever you borrow today is you're gonna to have to pay it back um, you know one and a half to two times the rate tomorrow and what are some thoughts that you have Rochelle on how to potentially minimize that sure. burden while you're in school yeah I was trying to think about the the drivers of that cost when you're in medical school and obviously some people have undergraduate student loan debt as well mm-hmm. but I think there are several things that drive that cost one thing is just which institution did you decide to go to for medical school is it in the country or is it outside the country like I've seen people go to like Barbados or places like that which have medical schools but it tends to be a lot more costly um, another thing is just like how much are you borrowing for tuition and how much are you borrowing just to get by from month to month? Because some people also have to take out those grad plus loans to pay for those expenses. And that drives up the balance of your loans, but they also tend to have higher interest rate loans. So that's kind of a double-edged sword. And so I think anything that you can do to live frugally while you're in med school is obviously very helpful for keeping that down. It's just you can't maintain the same lifestyle or buy fancy cars and do things like that. You just can't do that while you're in medical school. Or if you do, you have to realize that it's going to end up costing you a lot in the long run. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, keeping the And even possibly working while yeah. you're in school. I know it can be challenging, but you could find some mm-hmm. side job working as a scribe or, or in some lab, working as a, yeah. an ambulance driver. For yeah. uh, There's a lot of options where you can get some money and some experience. Um, but, uh, but also, we mentioned the, the school that you choose to go to. If You could pick an in-state school, potentially, if you know you're going to have to finance your full cost of tuition and cover housing expenses, um, you might consider going to a less expensive school if you can get into the in-state tuition option. Uh, that way, your medical school loan bill will be a lot smaller when you're in practice and you'll be able to pay those back more effectively, especially if you're considering uh, uh, one of the lower income specialties. You know, if you're pursuing a higher income specialty, then uh, taking out a larger loan balance may not be as daunting, but if you're looking to go into family medicine, primary care, pedi- pediatrics, um, or, you're, or you know you're not gonna make 
uh, as much as some of the, the surgical specialties than really being conscious of how much you're borrowing will your future self will thank you mm-hmm. and I think the most important thing is probably just to pay attention to it because I, I feel like when it gets away from people is when they just did it almost automatically this is how much they offered me to take out in loans borrowed the maximum so that's allowed. how much I took out yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it's almost like oh that's that's my allowance this is how much I get to spend mm-hmm. but if you can spend less then you're taking out less in loans and you have less to pay back yeah, and a freshman year, you take out the max and you have some left over at the mm-hmm. end. Don't borrow as much for the sophomore year. Yeah, so. or give some of it back. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pay back some of the loans yeah. while you're in school. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any other thoughts on uh, med students? Yeah, I think one thing with the specialties and like what you're end up going to do, like doing as a physician, is that you don't have as much control over that as maybe you you'd like yeah, to and so yeah you just you have to be a little bit careful like maybe you want to go into plastic surgery but that's not going to work out for mm-hmm. you True. so just be a little cautious with True. those kinds of things as well yep next stage residents where i know we've got a lot of uh folks in residency in that, fellowship that yep. will be listening to this and even work with uh, some of our advisors and that's often the first taste of student loan repayment Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the tips that you often give uh, to your the residents that you've worked yeah. with? So one thing is when you're at the very beginning of residency, and this goes a little bit back into the med school days, but it's helpful if you filed taxes that last year that you were in med school because you'll have a tax statement that shows that you had very little income. So most students, when they finish up and go into training, will apply for an income-driven plan just because there's not a whole lot of options for paying student loans back aggressively. They need to have a small payment just to make it manageable. So if you can demonstrate that you didn't have any income, that payment would be zero. And it'll give you a little bit of time just to get your finances in order because I feel like a lot of first-year residents, that's what they're doing. It's just trying to figure out what that cash flow is going to look like, trying to figure out how to pay their expenses and manage their student loans. So keeping that that balance low at the beginning is very helpful. Um, And then the other thing is just thinking about what you want your career to look like. And if you don't know for sure, that's fine, but just give it a little bit of thought because how you're going to approach your student loans long-term is very much dependent on the career path that you choose because your two main options are likely going to be public service loan forgiveness or PSLF. And I'm sure a lot of you have heard a little bit about that. We'll touch on some of the basics in a minute. And then paying them off the old-fashioned way just by paying them down, likely by refinancing with a private bank so you can at least lower the interest rate on those loans. So those are the two main things to kind of be thinking about, but it really does depend on what that career path is going to look for you, look like for you longer term. So with PSLF, I mean, there's a few things to think about there, right, Corey? Yeah, and that I think you've led into it with that tax return from med school so mm-hmm. you can have a $0 payment while you're in training. You know, normally it doesn't. Or at least make, that first year. Yeah, that yeah. first year while you're in training, um, you know, normally it doesn't make sense to pay zero dollars towards the debt because it's just going to accrue interest. But one of the components of of PSLF is you have to make 120 qualifying monthly payments on your loans based on an income-driven payment plan. Well, if your income-driven payment plan says you owe zero dollars this month, those zero-dollar payments still count towards that 120 qualifying payments, which I know doesn't necessarily make sense, but that's how it works. So if Mm -hmm. you have your first 
six to twelve payments at zero dollars, um, that can you know you're trading off for a three thousand dollar payment while you're in practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can eventually get those loans forgiven and get a larger amount forgiven that way. Um, so signing up as soon as possible and going on that payment plan will start that clock towards the 120 payments needed for PSLF. Right. And with PSLF, I mean, the main points there are that you have to be working for a qualifying employer, which is generally a nonprofit or a government entity, and you have to make those 120 payments while you are on an income-driven plan. So it's a payment amount that's determined as a multiple of your discretionary income. So it can get pretty high depending on the payment plan that you're in, but it, it stays low while you're in training, which yeah. is helpful to try to maintain the cash flow. I'd say for most residents and fellows, it'll end up being around two to 400 per month. Mm-hmm. If you're married and have a spouse that works, that could change the equation. Um, but uh, you know, it's a reasonable payment based on your income. The other component that you need to be aware of is your loans, uh, in order for them to qualify for loan forgiveness, have to be uh, federal direct student loans. So they have to say the word direct in the title. Uh, makes it pretty easy to know if you have direct loans or not. And uh, you can, um, it's not refinance, what's the term I'm looking for? <laughs> can consolidate right. uh, yeah, into d- uh, non-direct loans into direct loans. So pretty easy to do. Um, and that's something that you'd, that you'd want to try and do right away because if you've been making payments for a couple years and then you consolidate um direct loans with non-direct loans together, that'll reset the clock for you. So the sooner we can get started on that repayment plan, uh, then the more likely we will be to have a large amount forgiven once we are in practice, and the sooner we'll get to that 120 payment mark. Now, with PSLF, again, we'll cover it more in another podcast, um, but assuming well, even if you don't know if you're going to pursue PSLF, keeping that door open, I think, is big because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't know the direction they're going to go until they're actually fielding job offers and until they actually sign a contract. Yeah. Um, so keeping that door open is a possibility to potentially save a couple hundred thousand dollars down the road, um, You know, even if you only have a 5% chance that you're going to go work mm-hmm. in a, the public sector. You know, Just having that door open, is a, we don't want to close that right away. Um, the other option would just be paying them off the old-fashioned way. Yeah. Um, and even while you're in training, it's going to be tough to do. You can't make big payments while you're in training, probably. Most I mean, likely. It's very unlikely. Unless you're moonlighting a ton and, and really... You know, have, have a spouse be, that makes a lot of money. Yeah, that too. <laughs> um, but uh, but, but continue, continuing to make those income-based payments will help keep some of the interest at bay. There are some refinancing options out there. For uh, for residents and fellows, where they they require a minimum payment while you're in training, generally, unless you're 110 percent certain you're not pursuing PSLF, then um, usually I would say just stick with the income based plans. Um, mm-hmm. But case by case basis for everyone. That's yeah. the, the fun of financial planning. Everyone's situation is different. But. Um, other considerations while people are in residency before they start looking at those attending positions? Yeah, so I think the big thing and where this becomes something you can take action on is when you're actually looking for your job. So there are so many different employment opportunities out there for a lot of doctors. And when you're weighing your student loan options, you say, okay, well, if I go with this employer, they're a nonprofit, so I could qualify for PSLF. But maybe if I work for a private employer, I might get paid a little bit more. And there are also a lot of employers that are very aware 
that student loans are a huge burden for young doctors. And there are many that are willing to sort of negotiate and work into contracts, maybe some bonus payments, maybe some payments over like a three-year term or something like that to take a chunk out of those student loans at least. Well, I've seen some employers throw a lot of money towards yeah. student loans, especially if you're going into a, a more rural setting mm-hmm. or, or quote-unquote less desirable area. Yeah. Like I had a gal um, who started working uh, out of training in, I think it was North Dakota, and her employer was paying her 50000 a year towards student loans on top of her already higher than average salary. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the nice things uh, for medical professionals, um, physicians especially, is the term geographic arbitrage. Mm-hmm. They need to if you're in a big city, there's a lot of you. So the the supply is, is you know on par with the demand, so they don't have to overpay for your services. Whereas if they need to lure you to some, you know, tumbleweed town or you know, <laughs> middle of nowhere, they're going to probably have to overpay for the services in order to attract you to come there. Um, you know, we've got clients working on Indi- yeah. Indian reservations, and, and you know you couldn't find the place on the map even if you tried. Um, that, that are getting paid above market value uh, compared to a big city, plus getting money for student loans. So that could definitely be a consideration if you do have a hefty loan balance and are not intent on pursuing PSLF, is looking at an employer in a, a smaller town in, in middle America and really hurling some money towards those student loans. Yeah. So. And even if there isn't a huge bonus package to be had, it still makes sense to kind of look at your job offers and compare them. So if you're looking at two jobs and the private practice is willing to pay a substantial amount more in a base salary, it might make sense to do that instead of working yeah. with you know, a nonprofit job that just can't afford to pay as much, even if you can qualify for PSLF. That being said, this is not the only consideration for picking a job. Yeah. You can't work <laughs> yeah, you can't work your entire plan around your student loans and around pay. So obviously you have to find the right job for you too. And the more aggressive you can be in those early years with your student loans, then the the more flexible you can be later on with your career choices. I would say, yeah. you know, the people we've worked with, I'm making this number up, but it's probably not too far off, but I would say half of them switch employers within the first three years. Mm-hmm. So you sign up for one employer and whatever the reason may be, you switch. Um, whether it be a spouse gets a job elsewhere or yeah. it's just not the right fit or you get a more attractive opportunity later on. You know, who knows? Maybe um, you put in three years at the very rural area, and then after that, you're done yes, with it. Yes, loans are gone. <laughs> you know, you made a ton of money, saved up for the home down payment, and then you move back to the city you want to be in, mm-hmm. except a, a lower paying but more desirable job, mm-hmm. and, uh, and can get on with your life because the student loans are out of the picture. Yeah. So. Um, I guess we've kind of transitioned into that attending yeah. role for <laughs> considerations while, when you're in practice. Yeah, so I think with PSLF, if you do end up working for a qualifying employer, the most important thing is to be very, very diligent with that process because a lot of people have had problems getting their loans forgiven and it's either because they didn't have qualifying loans to begin with or did they didn't cross their T's and dot their I's by filing the appropriate paperwork and making sure their payment plans were in order. So there is a form that you have to file for each employer that's called the Employment Certification Form. So while you're in training, you need to file that for each institution you train at. And then as an attending, you need to file that form as well. And I would also say even just calling your loan servicer 
at least once or twice a year just to make sure that the number of payments that they have counted matches up with the number of payments you think you should have. And if you're in PSLF or on track for it, your loan servicer will be Fed Loan Servicing. So, you know, there's other loan servicers out there, but assuming you're on the right track, you know, the servicing provider switches to Fed Loan Servicing. So that's yeah. a big hint. Yeah, if you're with a different servicer, that's a bad sign. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, and who knows, that could, the servicing providers could change. The government contracts out, but as of now, anyone that's uh, on track for PSLF, their loans are serviced directly by. The Department of Education and Fed Loan Servicing, um, and that due diligence doesn't start when you get in practice. It starts from day one. Yes. So mm-hmm. keeping records of all your payments, the loans that you have, any uh, dates, uh, important documents, save all that stuff in a file, back it up somewhere. Um, but yes, that employment certification form is big, and we usually tell people do it annually. You can, yeah, absolutely. You don't have to, but. Yeah. Um, it just has to be done for each employer that you worked at, but it's good to do it every year just to stay on top of it. Right. And that form is what counts the payments that you've made. Yeah, it verifies yeah. that you were working, and then they can see if you actually made payments, and they can match up the time you were working mm-hmm. to the time you made payments, and then count those payments towards PSLF. The other thing with PSLF, and this is a question we hear all the time, is is it going to be around when I hit that 10 years? And there, there's a certain amount of risk there because... Obviously, the government can change laws. They have the power to do that. Congress has the power to do that. We haven't seen any indication that they're going to do that for existing borrowers or people that are in the plan. But for some people, that just seems very risky. And there are ways that you can kind of reduce that risk, maybe by investing a little bit of that money that would have gone to your, towards your payments. Yeah, if you're going on the PSLF track when you're in practice and... You know, you're thinking, well, I could just pay these loans off out of pocket if I paid X amount per month. Let's but say three thousand. That's yeah, a round number. Yeah. But I'm just gonna pay, or maybe you know, even more. Maybe you're gonna throw an extra couple thousand at the loans and pay five thousand a month mm-hmm. and try and get rid of them within a few years. Whatever that is, you ha- you could have a plan in place to pay them off out of pocket. But you know, you've worked five years in training. You only have five years to go. So you stand to have about half of your loan balance forgiven. That could be a pretty pretty sizable sum of money. So it would behoove you to pursue that if we can get it forgiven. But if, you know the confidence factor, there's still a question mark in the air as to whether or not that'll hold true. So you could create a side fund where you invest that extra few thousand a month that you're not required to pay on the loans on the off chance that you don't qualify you'll have a pot of money available to hurl at those loans after that five-year mark if if pslf falls through along the way but everything that we've seen again like rochelle said things could change but everything that we've seen would indicate that anyone who's already on the track for PSLF would be grandfathered in. Um, obviously, no guarantees, but mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it seems like any of the proposals, nothing's been changed with the laws. But all the proposals that have been um, brought to light, all of them basically say it would be phased out off of you know, new loans. So, you know, loans uh, given after summer of 2020 would not right. be eligible to be forgiven. So right. they would, rather than just cutting it off for existing people, most likely just phase out the type of loans that are eligible for forgiveness. Which is part of the art, uh, the reason where you've seen some articles of, of all the people getting declined, because they didn't have the right type of loans. Mm-hmm. So only certain types of loans are eligible for forgiveness. So if you don't have the right loans, you're not eligible to have them forgiven. And most of the loans that are eligible began weren't weren't begin 
weren't issued until after 2010. Mm -hmm. So even though the, the law was put into place in 2007, most of the loans didn't start getting into the borrower's hands until 2010 or later. Right. So, And that, a good way to tell is just if your loans say the word direct in them, you're good. They're direct loans. Yep. Those are the ones that qualify. If they're not direct with most of the federal loans, you can convert them, consolidate them into direct loans. But yeah. um, there's some hoops you got to jump through. There will be a lot of people that don't qualify for PSLF just because they don't work for a qualifying employer. Mm -hmm. And the next, the other thing that we talked about a little bit was just refinancing potentially. And the government loans, everyone gets the same rate basically. So the interest rate tends to be a little bit higher. And there are some private banks out there that will buy your loans basically from the federal government and give you a new loan at a lower interest rate. And ideally, if we can do that and lower the interest rate, it just allows you to pay off those loans a little bit faster. So it can make sense to at least look into that to see what your options are. If you get into your attending job, you know you're working for a private practice and you just want to attack your loans aggressively, that's a good strategy to employ to just make sure more of your money is going towards that principal on the loans instead of the interest. Yeah, even lowering the rate by 1% interest mm -hmm. on a $250,000 balance, that's $2,500 a year that you'd save initially in interest. So it enables you to pay them off a little bit faster. Mm -hmm. um, I think the big thing, whether it's refinance or just attack with the public loans, um, just develop a, a strategy and a plan yep. to have those loans eliminated. So rather than, uh, we talked a little bit about it last time, you know, getting that attending role and letting the lifestyle creep kick in mm -hmm. and uh, you up the lifestyle without paying attention to your financial goals and then it makes it challenging to achieve your financial goals. Same thing here. So when we get into practice, continue to live like you're still in residency or in med school and come up with a plan to have those loans eliminated while simultaneously funding some of your other financial goals. Mm -hmm. And you'll be able to do that and still be able to increase your lifestyle a little bit, but it's a lot easier if you start directing your extra money towards your financial goals. And then build your lifestyle. And then build the lifestyle yeah. with what's left versus mm -hmm. build the lifestyle. And then try to figure the rest out. what's left, <laughs> figure the rest out. But yeah. if you have a plan in place, you know, to you know, maybe you you want to pay off your loans in ten years, or seven years, or five years, or three years, whatever whatever the goal is. Let's set up a game plan to have those eliminated within that time frame, and then once that's set up, you can put your loans on autopilot and and start focusing on some of the other goals like retirement savings, college savings, saving up for a home down payment, things like that. Um, which kind of gets into the, the next thing I wanted to, to touch on was the balance between paying down debt versus investing or, yeah. or doing other things. We'll get that question a lot. Well, should I pay extra on my loans or should I uh, you know, invest for retirement or college? Or, and the answer is both. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I do it. see a lot of people that really, really, really are debt averse and these student loans have been hanging over them almost like a specter in a dream. Like they just hate them so much. And all they want to do is put all of their resources towards student loans. And I, it's amazing that they want to get rid of those student loans, but you can't completely ignore everything else. Like retirement savings is still important. You're mm -hmm. still trying to play catch up with that. You're still trying to rebuild your savings account and things like that. So you have to make sure that you're 
balancing everything and prioritizing things appropriately. Yes, we want to attack your student loans, but yes, we also want to try to save for retirement. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure you have a decent buffer in your savings account in case something happens. Like there's, there's a lot of different things that, that you have to be paying attention to. And just if it takes you seven years instead of three years to pay off your student loans because you took care of some of that other stuff as well, like just know that that's okay. Like you just do what you can. Yeah, I think as long as we're being productive with the money, um, then we're making smart financial decisions. And some of it does boil down to where your priorities lie. Like, you know, if you're comfortable working a little bit longer just or, or not having the dream home as right. soon, but you know you're going to have those student loans eliminated in three years, then mm-hmm. great, let's, let's attack the loans. But assuming you have all the other goals that most other people have, like we want to buy a house, we want to retire, you know, by our late fifties, early sixties, we want to be able to pay to some degree for our kids to go to college and, you know, drive a decent car and then go on vacations and all that, all that fun stuff. Um, you know, we do need to start funding some of those other goals, like put a, a minimum amount to, to towards retirement so you're on track to reach that within a reasonable time frame. If we do have, if college savings is a priority, let's put a little bit aside every month towards the college account so that we have you know at least some money set aside for college, um, whatever your desired goal is. And then if there's extra money on top of that, yeah, let's maybe attack the loans if the loans are a big priority. Mm-hmm. Or if you've developed a plan to have the loans the loans eliminated in due time, like if you've decided you want to have them paid off in five years and they're on track to be paid off within five years, well, with our extra money, we might be better served putting that towards retirement. Because mm-hmm. you have a plan in place to pay off the student loans. Whether you yeah. like it or not, if you keep paying that payment amount, they're going to be gone in five years. Eventually, yeah. Whereas retirement, we're, we're definitely going to be a little bit further behind on that one. So putting those extra dollars in that example towards retirement would probably better serve you in the long run. Right. So I think more than anything, it's just important to have that game plan. And that's true whether you're in medical school or whether you're in training or whether you're in attending. There are so many people that I feel like come to us and they have a lot of anxiety about their student loans. And I think just having a plan in place, even if it's while you're in training, pay my minimum payments. Like if, if they know that's all they can do and you talk to them about what a good game plan might be when they do have a little bit more cash flow, it's just helpful for peace of mind. And mm-hmm. you just know that you have a game plan and you can make it work in the long run. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and we're realistic too. We understand we can't do it all. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to be challenging to accomplish uh, everything in the time frame that, that ideally we can accomplish it. So we get it. You know, we don't live in a vacuum where your only options are pay down debt or invest. We mm-hmm. understand you got to, you know, go on a vacation every once in a while mm-hmm. and spend money on something stupid every once in a while, but <laughs> just live life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think maybe next time it would make sense to talk a little bit about that retirement savings piece of it and just dive into that a little bit more. Like that, it really is a balancing act between those two and, and maintaining your lifestyle and building your life how you want it to look. So there's a lot more to talk about here. Yes, we've got a lot to cover. Stay tuned for future episodes and look forward to continuing. Yep. Thank you for joining us. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Finity Group LLC. 
You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on LinkedIn as well. Check out all the podcast episodes on thefinitygroup.com slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our blog, thefinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Affinity Group, LLC.